HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, makers of specialty cheese from Switzerland, crafted with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. That's E-M-M-I-U-S-A.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with me, your host, Zara Tangora. And Bobby Conforto, your mom. My mom, mine mom. Hello, how are you? Hi, Zaz. How are you Hi. today? Um, I'm good. It's a it's we are recording on Friday, September 10th, and it is a beautiful day here in the Northeast. I'm in Brooklyn, you're in uh, Huntington, Long Island. And it's a similar kind of, I mean, the weather in the beginning of September in this part of the country is always quite lovely for the most part. And, but when you get crisp, clear days like this, no matter what month it is, it actually always reminds me of 9-11-2001 because it was so specifically, and I think anyone who was here in the area on that day remembers so specifically how perfect it was of a day. And this is a day like, like that. Weather-wise. And that's kind of what remember what we remember in in traumas and tragedies. We remember certain things get really stuck in our in our brain. Yeah. So I think that's it. That blue sky always reminds people of nine eleven, and here we are today on September tenth. September tenth, twenty twenty one. Bobby and I had a couple of different ideas and plans for what to do on today's show, and we kind of um, settled. We we settled on an idea of talking about something. We're going to talk about a couple of things. Last year, we did a show on 9-11 where, you know, we discussed a, we discussed it in a specific way. And this year we wanted to do something a little different. And as we were thinking, um, we kind of thought a lot about uh, Windows on the World, which was mm. the restaurant that was atop uh, the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And so, you know, I want to kind of talk, we'll, get into that in a little bit, but I kind of want to talk about that because, uh, I mean, really can't be more kind of at the intersection of food and grief than discussing, you know, windows on the world on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 tragedy. Absolutely. I actually don't know too much about it. As, as, uh, some of the listeners may know, and you know, I worked in a world trade center program for four years 
and I worked with rescue and recovery workers in Project Liberty, and then I worked with uh, family members who had lost people, but I never worked with anybody from who had a um, family member in Windows in the World. So have you learned more about it? I have. And, you know, I, uh, I've listened to a book about Windows. Um, it's something that I had, you know, as a person in restaurants, as I became, you know, on 9-11-2001, I was a senior in high school, so I hadn't yet become, you know, a chef or started my career in restaurants. But over the years, as I became more aware of, you know, New York City history in general, and more specifically, New York City restaurant history, it's something that I've spent a pretty good deal of time thinking about and learning about. And, you know, I think our larger sense of empathy as human beings hopefully allows us to f- try to empathize and sympathize with people who do not share our same situations, right? We should, well, the goal is to be able to do, to feel empathy and have understanding for folks of all different backgrounds and be able to, you know, put ourselves in that situation. But um, kind of like, on a personal level, right? If someone does our same job, if they're in the same profession, if, if we can picture their day-to-day because it's a day-to-day that we've had a similar yeah. experience with, it pulls at a different set of heartstrings. They're neither more or less important per se, but it is more relatable when someone has, you know, like our, is kind of like just like us in a certain way. And in, in a lot of the things I've read and listened to about Windows on the World, you know, just hearing from employees who worked there and were not, uh, you know, killed in the attacks. Um, but I'm just describing the workplace environment and kind of just the mundane, but like very sweet and personal things that happened at work, like, you know, how they would get through a busy service and stuff like that. And you think about in your own experiences with busy service and your coworkers and the people in restaurants that you like. And I know that it's like this in a lot of jobs where you spend a lot of time with people and in restaurants, you spend a lot of time with people and intense time and you're in the shit with them. Those people will come and that it's not a cliche. Those people become like your family, Mm -hmm. you know, really deeply become like your family. Um, And you can kind of be your worst self and your best self and you're all the things around them. And so, yeah, it's just um, one of the many ways that this event destroyed families, you know, chosen or, or birth families and, or work families. And And the uh, work families, exactly. Because they were, that's what's unique about this tragedy is that they were work families that were shattered. I think it was Cantor Fitzgerald. I can't remember how many hundreds of people died in in one company and how many uh, people at windows of the world died. 73 employees of windows Mm. on the world were killed. And I'm going to get into that. Uh, in a moment. Um, But, you know, in kind of rereading some of this stuff, like, I think similarly to what is happening now with the COVID crisis, when you're in, and and the same as goes, I think, for personal loss and trauma as well, like when you're in a trauma and a traumatizing situation, even sometimes for years after it, or, you, you know, in this case with COVID, we're in it for years, you can't quite wrap your brain around the pain and the horror of what you either saw, have seen, read about, experienced, like, and for me, like revisiting it in this kind of like intense way and doing a lot of research about this um, and specifically about windows, like I found myself like really having a hard time with it because like I almost, I don't know. I mean, I was 18 years old when this happened, right? And I was a 
a kind of shitty 18 year old in a, in a lot of ways, you know, and very self-involved and concerned with my own stuff. And that's not to say that the tragedy of 9-11 didn't impact me or affect me. Of course it did, you know, but like as an adult, uh, and as someone who's lived in New York for the past 19 years of my life, thinking about being an adult, being my age at this time, having spent as much time in this city Mm. as I have and loving it as much as I do, just kind of putting myself there where I am now, it just kind of like hit me in a really different way, you know? Um, Like hearing about people who were on the street and then they just saw bodies just falling out of the building in front of, I mean, I, I don't know. I know people like love their cities and wherever mm. you're from, you can be from a small town, you can be from a huge city, whatever. Like I can only speak for what it is to be a New Yorker. Like I don't have a sense of nationalism. Uh, I do have a very strong sense of like pride in being a New Yorker because it's mm. such a incredible and diverse and welcoming and intense and creative place. And like, it's been my greatest honor in my life to be a New Yorker and to, I don't know, just to like think about the pain that people like experienced in this horrible tragedy. It's just, it's really terrible, you know? Yeah. For for those of us that lived in New York and lived in the Northeast or had, had loved New York, was particularly um shattering it was just shattering to the core and then there was the human element of just people all over the world were affected because of the human element of what had happened so so there's different levels of how we were um shattered but and, and if you think of people who are rescuing recovery workers and that's their work they had their own level of being shattered to be um to be all those months afterwards and what that was like for them. So there were so many different levels of trauma. And years, yeah, and years afterwards. And I just kind of want to say, and this is just my personal belief, and I know we all have different personal beliefs, but like the level of like patriotism that's attached to mourning 9-11, I'm not like dismissing that at all. But the fact is that like a lot of these same folks who feel this immense patriotism of like never forget and support, you know, our, our here, our fallen heroes. And I'm not besmirching that in the least. Um, but now seeing like in other crisis, you know, it's just like to specifically pick this crisis. Like if you are a person who, or know somebody in your life who feels that 9-11 was an extreme tragedy and yet like can't see the tragedy and what's happening now, can't like move past their rugged individualism. And like, you know, now we've lost hundreds of thousands of people, almost 700,000 people in this crisis. Um, And we have like fully, like in in large abandoned the the first responders who are sick Mm -hmm. and dying and have been for two decades now, the most brave people who went picking through the fucking rubble for months and then got cancer and all this horrible shit. We have actively uh, elected people who do not stand up for these people's rights, who do not like want to include them and give them the proper money and the proper support that they need. And so like, I would just encourage anyone listening who might have stopped their empathy at saying never forget and honor our heroes like what does that mean you know what I mean what does it what does it mean and why do you feel that way and like 
Does it only apply to 9-11? Like, do we love people like across the board? Because we're all people, right? Like, And I think that's part of why looking at Windows on the World, that we're honoring those heroes yeah. today, right? So that's kind of what we're saying. So t- tell me more about what you learned about the people that work there and what happened yeah, to them. Yeah, I would love to. So the thing about Windows that is... Um, both really amazing and also frustrating in the capitalist sense is that, um, and which I'll get to later, is that the majority of people that worked at Windows on the World were uh, immigrants, some undocumented workers and some not. But there were people, I believe, from like 23 different countries working at Windows on the World, which that is an incredible fact. The thing where capitalism and greed gets in the way is because Windows on the World in 2001 was the highest earning restaurant in the entire world. Wow. And while um, the workers there, you know, particularly front of house tipped workers would and have said themselves that they made a good living and it made it possible for them to have, you know, some of the things that they had wanted in life because of the living they made there at the time in 2001, the tipped minimum wage was still $2.15 an hour. Wow. And the regular minimum wage, I believe, was like seven or maybe even under. Wow. So there was plenty of workers there who were not making a living wage at all. And that is hugely problematic. And as we'll get to in the end of the story, there's something that was really beautiful born out of like workers' rights in this whole situation. But Mm. um, yes, let me tell you a little bit about Windows on the World. So I got my information today, and this is a bit different than how we normally structure the podcast. It's like, has a little tinge of Life's a Banquet in it, which is my other show that I do, which is very different than this show, but it's a kind of a food history comedy podcast. And so taking a little bit of structure from there, only because I think this is a very interesting story and just like, uh, you know, I kind of want to get the facts out there for anyone who doesn't know about it. So I got my information today from a a very recent CBS News article by Kate Gibson. Um, A huge chunk of this information came straight from Wikipedia. Donate to them if you can, because they provide us all with a lot of free information. Um, A Medium.com article by Tom Rostin and an article in the Huffington Post from 2011 by Alexander Eichler. So on September 8th, 2001, Siku Sibi was playing soccer on a field in Queens with several of his co-workers. At the time, Sibi was a line cook and a chef who spoke four languages. Like everyone else in the game, he worked at Windows on the World. Among the players were Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Ecuadorians, and Brazilians, a highly international group, but one typical of the Windows staff, which included immigrants from every corner of the globe. By all accounts, it didn't matter that people hailed from dozens of different countries, the Windows workers formed a tight-knit community. Quote, it was the real deal, recalled Sibby, himself an immigrant from the Ivory Coast. So many different groups, we really all got along. Three days later, nearly everyone who had been in the soccer game was dead. Victims of the September 11th terrorist attacks that destroyed the World Trade Center and killed 2,977 people in New York, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Sibby would have been at Windows of the World that morning had he not recently agreed to swap shifts with a coworker. It was five years before I was able to play soccer again, he said. So, Windows on the World was a complex of venues on the top floors, the 106th and the 107th floors of the North Tower, Building 1, of the original World Trade Center complex in Lower Manhattan. Um, 
this is kind of just like a little tangent, you know, when the World Trade Center first opened, Windows was kind of brought in to like, they, the original owner wanted it to be this really classy place. New York had kind of been going through some very difficult times in the mid seventies. And so this was kind of like really big and revamping the image of the World Trade Center in general and trying to um, revamp the image of New York and probably one of the, it's very, very worst times. I and mean, this is a point in history when the city was like about to go bankrupt. So uh, it included a restaurant called Windows on the World, a smaller restaurant called Wild Blue, a bar called the greatest bar on earth and rooms for private functions. The restaurant was opened on April 19th, 1976 and was destroyed on September 11th, 2001. Michael LaMonica was the head chef at the time of the September 11th attacks, and he had gone to get an eye test uh, before work on September 11th and narrowly missed being at work. Uh, The main dining room faced north and east, allowing guests to look out on the skyline of Manhattan. The dress code required jackets for men and was strictly enforced. A man without a jacket but who had a reservation was seated at the bar. A more intimate dining room, Wild Blue, was located on the south side of the restaurant. The bar extended along the south side of One World Trade Center, as well as the corner part of the east side. Looking out from the bar through the full-length windows, one could see views of the southern tip of Manhattan, where the Hudson and East Rivers met. In addition, one could see the Liberty State Park with Ellis Island and Staten Island with the Verrazano Narrows Bridge in the background. The kitchen, utility space, and conference center in the restaurant was located on the 106th floor. Windows on the World briefly closed after the 1993 bombing in which employee Wilford Mercado was killed by checking in deliveries in the building's underground garage. And then it went on, it had a $25 million renovation reopened in June 1996. The morning of September 11th, 2001, the restaurant was hosting a regular breakfast for patrons of the Risk Waters Financial Technology Congress. World Trade Center Lesser, Larry Silverstein was was regularly holding meetings at Windows with the tenants as part of his recent acquisition of the Twin Towers from the Port Authority and was scheduled to be in the restaurant that morning of the attacks. However, his wife insisted he go to the dermatologist that morning Mm. instead, whereby Mm. he avoided death. Mm. Everyone present in the restaurant when American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower at 8.46 a.m. died that day. As all means of escape and evacuation, including stairwells and elevators leading to the below the impact zone, were instantly cut off, trapping everyone present in the restaurant complex at the time in the crash. Victims trapped in windows on the world died either from smoke inhalation, from the fire, or from jumping or falling from the building to their deaths, or from the eventual collapse of the North Tower 102 minutes later. I know, it's really sad. It's terrible. There were 73 restaurant staff present in the restaurant, including Assistant General Manager Christine Oleander, whose desperate calls to the Port Authority Police represented the restaurant's final communications. 16 incisive Media Risk Waters Group employees, as well as 76 other guests and contractors, were also present. Among those present was the Executive Director of the Port Authority, Neil Levin, who was having breakfast. After 9.40 a.m., no further distress calls from the restaurant were made. 
the last people to leave the restaurant before Flight 11 collided with the North Tower at 8.46 a.m. were Michael Nestor, Liz Thompson, Jeffrey Wharton, and Richard Tierney. They departed at 8.44 a.m. and survived the attack. Wow. Ivan Luis Capiro Bustia, a Windows cook from Peru, was turning 24 that day. He left a message on his cousin's answering machine saying, I can't go anywhere because they told us not to move. I have to wait for the firefighters. Moises Rivas, a cook, managed to get a call out as well. He called home to speak with his wife, Elizabeth, but she was in the laundry. He left a message that he loved her no matter what. It has been speculated that the falling man, a famous photograph of a man dressed in a white fall in white falling headfirst on September 11th, was an employee at Windows on the World. Hmm. Although his identity has never been conclusively established, he was believed to be Jonathan Breeley, an audio technician at the restaurant. Many, uh, most of the immigrant, uh, most of the employees at Windows on the World had immigrated to this country. On January 4th, 2006, a number of Windows on the World staff opened Colors, a cooperative restaurant in Manhattan that serves as a tribute to their colleagues and whose menu reflects the diversity of former Windows staff. That original restaurant closed, but its founder's umbrella organization, Restaurant Opportunity Center United, continued its mission, including Colors restaurants in New York and other cities. So as I mentioned before, the minimum wage for tipped workers at Windows at the time in New York was $2.13 an hour. <laughs> the, that number had uh, unchanged much of the country in these past 20 years, remains front and center of the labor battle that's still being waged after two decades. Uh, Saru uh, Jayaraman was an attorney and organizer at Worker Center on Long Island, uh, New York, when she got a call from uh, Fak- Fekak uh, Mamado, who was a Windows on the World waiter and shop steward for the hotel employees and restaurant employees union. Uh, Mamado, a Moroccan immigrant who held degrees in physics and chemistry, had been a Windows on the World at Windows since 1996, working as a waiter and union shop steward. He spent much of the week of September 11th in various hospitals and sit in the city morgue trying to account for his missing coworkers. When he wasn't searching for the Lost Windows employees, the 73 people he today calls his brothers and sisters, Mamdo was helping to process emergency casework for immigrant members of his collective, uh, the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees Union. So, quote, 99% of the people that go into work in restaurants don't have anybody to go to, Mamdo told the Huffington Post. People, when they get mad in restaurants, they go next door or for another job, and people are used to living like this. Like, this is the restaurant business, and that's how it goes. Take it or leave it. Many of the people uh, whose cases Mamdo handled were struggling with problems, financial instability, lack of health care, few or no workplace rights that predated 9-11, and they couldn't be resolved in a few hours in an emergency center. Um, the pair formed the Restaurant Opportunity Center, uh, known as ROC, United to help find jobs for displaced New York City restaurant workers and whose numbers swelled to more than 12,000 in just three months immediately following 9-11. ROC has since grown into an organization with chapters in nine states in the District of Columbia and is currently led by uh, Seku Sibi, who we just mentioned before. Remember the guy who lost uh, his 
his friends in the soccer game. Um, yeah. A chef who would have been in the kitchen at Windows on 9-11 had he not agreed to swap chefs with his colleague. In the past 20 years, ROC campaigned for paid sick days and minimum wage increases and against management pocketing workers' tips, workplace discrimination and sexual harassment, helping recoup millions of dollars for workers through legal settlements. Over the past 18 months, ROC has distributed more than 1 million, and this is now, because this is an article from that I'm reading from directly from CBS, um, ROC has distributed more than 1 million to roughly 5,000 restaurant workers who lost their jobs during just shut, shutdowns during the pandemic. ROC was also a key force in the push in this past decade to make a $15 minimum wage. Um, it aligned with the fight for 15, a coalition of fast food retail and other workers that sprang up in New York in 2012 with support from the Services Employees International Union, and soon after started One Fair Wage to end all sub-minimum wages in the U.S., that includes pay for those whose tips are viewed as part of their wages, like restaurant workers. And so um, we encourage you to go to uh, uh, rocunited.org to check out more of the really incredible work that these folks are doing. And so I know that was kind of just like a lot of information at once, but it's just never fails to impress me. I'm just speaking in an industry that I know a lot about, and I know there's other folks and feel passionately about their industries and stuff, but how restaurant workers who are often underpaid, overworked, um, treated poorly by both management sometimes and ownership and guests and will always be the ones to pull their shit together and help people and mm -hmm. help their own people and help other people and do whatever it takes. Always. In my experience, always. And it's really a bigger family touching. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. to these people, who lost their lives and to everyone, of course, you know, every life that was lost on 9-11. Um, I mean, but just because we're happened to be speaking about windows, I mean, I can't imagine, I can't imagine the fear and, and the pain and the sadness that their families must have felt. And just what a, what a horribly unfair way to die. It's very, very fucking sad. And, uh, yeah, but it's a beautiful thing what these folks did. And oh, that really is. I'm so glad to have learned about that. I, I, I always wondered. I was actually only there once, not as a guest, but um, Rob, who's my husband, is is a video um, videographer, and he did a wedding there once that I went with him. Wow, I, and I remember that. just being up there from that perspective because I was part of the staff in a way. I was yeah. not a guest, so it was. Uh, and I can't imagine traveling up 106 floors every day to go to work. It's such an odd, I know. weird I thought that too, actually. thing anyway. It's just weird. It's weird to be up in a pocket up high in the sky like that. It's just very, yeah, very it's, strange. It's super weird. And like, you know, Windows in the World wasn't particularly known for their great food as like, you know, it's kind of hard for big banquety restaurants to be. Right, right. But man, like the kind of, like, I was just reading stories about how like, um, Mark Murphy, when he was a chef there, like had like a hole cut out so they could pass from the bar to the kitchen, like cold Heineken's into the kitchen and how like the chefs used to like have fights and throw like kumquats at each other to like diffuse like the pain after like a really brutal night and the level of like hard work that it requires yeah. to like run a place like that and be in a place like that is really intense. And it's makes me really sad to think that people weren't paid properly 
there or anywhere else, especially at a restaurant that was the highest earning restaurant in the entire world that same year, you know, it's just, that's a whole nother topic about workers' rights. And, um, but you know, it just, uh, it's just so sad and it's so scary to think about being in a position, you know, I had a little tiny glimpse at what that might feel like in my own accident of just feeling like, shit, I'm trapped and now I'm going to die. And I'm so thankful every day that, like, that wasn't the outcome. But I just saw that for a second, like, you know, and just enough time to kind of, like, to put myself there, you know? Oh, shit, something really horrible is happening. fucking, god damn, you know, like, seeing those images of people just, like, jumping out of the window, like, it's just so... I know it's not like helpful because to really necessarily talk about it like this because we're supposed to have some kind of answer in some way, but just honestly, like it's just so hard to see as someone who didn't even personally lose someone, you know, like I can't imagine. And I my heart really deeply goes out to you how much to anyone out there who lost somebody, I mean, who's ever lost somebody anywhere, but we're specifically talking about 9-11 yes. today. So I'll keep it focused on that. But like in a mass public tragedy, that's just, really what we're talking about because it's it's the numbers, the sheer numbers yeah. of people who were terrified is just profound. It's, yeah. And the, the sheer numbers of families that were affected by that to yeah. this day, as you say, it's we should, you know. So I want to talk a little bit about um, my perspective in a way. You know, I've mentioned before I had the honor of a few months after 9-11 being part of a project, a very big project that was part of South Nassau Community Hospital, which is in Oceanside. Mm. And they had decided to set up what was a family center. So um, it wasn't just a counseling center, but it was a place where families could come and work through the losses together. And it was also a site for Project Liberty, which was the New York State program for rescuing recovery workers and for dealing with their PTSD and for evacuees. So um, I'm not going to get into the whole program right now, but I reviewed um, a documentary that um, my husband and I made during that period of time over the four year period. And it was called um, it was called After the Fall, the Rise of a 9-11 Community. Is there anywhere so, where folks can watch that, like online? No, unfortunately, Bobby? not because it was really meant for the program for the hospital. It was the property of the hospital and not ourselves. Right, right. But it was really quite profound. It was uh, Dan Rather uh, introduced it, and we interviewed, you know, over a hundred people for a four-year period. Yeah, it's and incredible. And then put it together into a documentary, including children. So we interviewed children. We interviewed um, rescue and recovery workers. We interviewed parents spouses, um, everyone who had had losses. But the thing that stood out for me when I reviewed it, I was watching it again, was one woman who didn't lose somebody. She was um, an evacuee. So she was in the building and she escaped. Mm. And so as we're interviewing her and she's talking about PTSD, she said the following thing. She said, it hurts to remember and it hurts to forget. Yeah. So Mm. I thought that that might be something we might talk about today. Because it really does hurt to remember, you know, even when we watch, you know, when, when there was Schindler's List and people used to say, how could you watch that? Mm. You know, how could you try to remember that? We didn't have to live through it. We just had to watch it and it hurt. Yeah. So it really hurts to remember both as somebody um, who just wasn't part of it and was just a, a citizen. Yeah. You know, as you say, a citizen of New York City. Is, but it, imagine what it's like to remember when you've gone through it. 
But on the other hand, it hurts to forget. And I think yeah. that's a real dilemma that people that go through trauma experience because totally. they feel guilty to forget. They feel it's it's a sin to forget. They can't forget. And yet it hurts so much to remember. Right. Yeah, I think that's an interesting line to walk. And and then how much do you really keep that, you know, yeah, how much do you keep that with you? It's kind of what I was like even speaking about before, you know, of like the of of continuing our empathy and remembering that these people I know it's slightly different when you're saying, of course, because that's on a more personal level, but just remembering that folks are still suffering. And we've claimed that this, you know what I mean? Like, what does it really mean to like continue to really pay homage to people? Like, remember that there are people who like still really need our help with this in various different ways that will always, you know? Because it's an interesting concept. There's something in grief that we call the duality of grieving. And it means that we're living and walking ahead at the same time as we grieve. And we do both things at the same time. And it seems so strange to be able to do both things at the same time. But I think what I heard you say before, and I know this about you as a human, that you you don't turn away, you don't shy away from remembering the pain of of, of other humans. You know, it's something right. that you do while you live. And so sometimes for, for many of us, we're in life, we're living our regular lives, and we don't always remember the hurt and the tragedy and the pain of others. Yeah. But I think it really does talk about balance. It takes a lot of balance to try to live and celebrate life. And at the same time, honor that there's incredible tragedies in our in our life, past, present, and and future, unfortunately. Totally. So and how I, can we hold both things at the same time, you know? Yeah. How can we, yeah. Totally. And I think with this specific thing is that, like, there, there are people around the globe who experience this type of traumatization on a daily basis. That thing, that yes. buildings in their neighborhoods are destroyed, that their whole families are killed, that like people come, you know what I mean? Like really the, yes. this world experiences so much violence and so much terror and so much injustice, whether it's, you know, environmental or politically right. charged or whatever. And like, I think it's important to realize whatever our feelings are about 9-11, how much pain we have about 9-11, that there's, there are incredible tragedies happening everywhere. And that does not take any pain away from what happened on 9-11 and just I hope that it I hope that it encourages people to have a sense of empathy about other tragedy you know what I mean and hope I hope it it can carry out because it's it's one very very horrible tragedy in like a world that has a lot of horrible tragedy you know well what happens is that when you go through trauma and tragedy it's a very self-centered experience you can't help it like if right now something hit your leg god forbid you know right you would completely lose focus that we were here together you know you would focus in on your leg and you would try to to see what could be done so that's kind of what happens unfortunately when people go through terrible things it becomes very self-focused and self-centered and sometimes it's hard to realize that you're part of human tragedy yeah, and make that true. comparison. But I find as a, as somebody that works with people, I try to help them have perspective all the time. Yeah. And I've likened COVID a lot to 9-11 in many ways because of the public tragedy of it. It's not just something, and we've talked about this on the program, that it's talked about all the time. Everywhere you look, you know, people right, are mentioning triggering. it. So if you had a loss, it's triggering over and over. Yeah. And I always remember people used to tell me in the groups, at the World Trade Center uh, program that I worked in, 
they would say, I just went into the cleaners. I was trying to pick up my clothes. And there's a picture of the burning towers on the wall with a sign, yeah. never forget. Right. And they would say, just what you said, I don't want to remember at that moment. At that moment, I just want to pick up my clothes and yeah. my kids are waiting for me. And I don't want to. And so I thought that was very interesting when you said that about never forget and how there was that um, patriotic concept um, that people who were not touched personally by it would say. And yet the family members who went through it, part of them, they were trying to figure out how they could forget. I just want to, again, reinforce and encourage anyone who personally might feel this way or like has, I would assume more likely has a family member that feels this way. Again, just really want to reinforce. And John Stewart has done some really incredible, important work in this, in this uh, arena that like there are heroic individuals who spent months searching through rubble who are dying or have died from absolutely horrifying cancers because of this. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to the people who you support, vote for, like who maybe your friends and family are voting for, who are actively or actively pursuing not giving these people money, support, healthcare that they need to deal with. And like, that's never forgetting. That's exactly. Talk. So that's, that's the way to never forget to remember the humanity. Don't forget remember the about the real thing because otherwise it can be a little bit performative. You know what I mean? Like be about it because these people still really need our help and, ev- and other people need our help. And so, I, I mean, we can't possibly be involved in every tragedy that happens around the world. That's just not possible. That's not possible unless for you're, anyone Unless to you're do. Jose Andres. Right. But, <laughs> but, but truly, like, I mean... It does, it's not over and like it just the irony sometimes in some of this stuff and I'm sure anyone here who might have a family member who whatever might be inclined to think or feel this way probably already knows what I'm talking about um so just yeah just maybe touch base with what it means because um we can't abandon these folks you know what I mean we mm-hmm. can't abandon these folks under like the guise of like what does it actually mean to care yes uh, amen so I wanted to just briefly talk about from a grief perspective, you know, what are the ways that we can, in a way, live while also not forgetting? And so this has to do with individual losses that you have in your life or the public tragedies that we face. So I think the actual number one way, I have four points that I brought up, I think four or five points. So um, the, the first most important way really is to honor your own survival. And that sounds weird because it sounds like when something happens, you know, in our life or on our society, you know, we should become selfless, but it's really important. The first way to honor a loss is to fight your, your own, to have your own fight back to life again. Mm. So I think that's so important. I had a, a, a group, it is really important. I had a group this past uh, week um, of young widows under 50 who lost their husbands this year and have children. Um, mm. They lost their husbands suddenly. And somebody said the most amazing thing. She said, my friend tells me every day when I wake up, keep swimming. Oh, and I thought so that sweet. was so sweet. Just that image that her friend, of course, would say that to her every single day. Just keep swimming, keep swimming, keep that's swimming. Really sweet. And that's the, our own survival. We have to keep swimming. No matter how something has affected us, we, we have to first look to ourselves for our own survival. And it doesn't always have to be a perfect stroke. It could be yes. a sloppy, like, exactly. sometimes exactly. it's like that sloppy, you're like, you know, gasping for air and you're treading water. Like, but yeah, that's really lovely. Yeah. So learning to live while you care for yourself. 
you know, and that's, that's really the most important thing in grief, actually. So another concept that we've talked about very often on our show, and really what our show is about, is about continuing bonds. You know, so how do we find ways to cultivate um, an internal relationship with, with the person who has died in our life? And food is one way that we talk about all the time. We've had yeah. so many of our guests, you know, talk about how food, the preparation of food, the um, loving of food, the um, eating of food is a way to create an internal relationship with your loved one. Um, I think I've also mentioned this on the show before. It's almost like being a trapeze artist because you have to let go. If you imagine we're up on a trapeze and you're standing there and you're holding onto the bar and you know the other bar is way over there. And the bar that you're holding onto is your physical relationship with the person you love in the world. And you know you have to let go. Not only do you have to let go of them, but you, at some point you let go of their clothing and you let go of their side of the bed and you let go of their place in your life. And all of a sudden you let go and you don't know, is there going to be another bar there that I can actually hold on to over there? Because that's the one I want. I want to have an internal relationship that's going to last me for the rest of my life. It can't be that somebody I love so much can be here and then all of a sudden they're not a, a part of me at all. So I liken it to the trapeze. And I, I always That's like really that metaphor. That's a really great analogy, Mom. You're yeah. always so good with the analogies. <laughs> I love metaphors. Um, so the other concept of continuing bonds is sometimes to embody a special quality of the person that we love. And I had a good personal example of this the other day. Um, you were going off on a trip and you were leaving from my house. And you woke me up. You told me you were leaving at five in the morning. So I woke up with you and I stood out there and I waited to the very last until your car left the driveway. And I remembered my mother. I'm exactly like my mother. And I think that's a way that I can continue the bond with her. Because when I felt that, she was with me. I felt her. She was, I didn't feel the absence of her. I felt the presence of her. So I think that's one of the ways that we embody you know, the special qualities of people that we love in a way to continue bonds. So one of the things you were talking about in the, um, the articles that you read was doing something good in the name mm. of someone else. And certainly there, um, there are so many incredible things that we do to um, honor somebody's name, but it can be very simple. It can be like lighting a candle. I mean, you know, personally in my life, I light a candle all the time. Every day I have a candle lit. And my purpose yeah. for lighting that candle is really to the name of all the people that I have loved, that I that have been here, that are here, and that aren't here. And so it can be as simple as that. It can be as simple as putting a picture up and putting some flowers next to it. But we, it's our way of showing the world that they lived. It's the way of showing the world that they were loved. It's the way of showing the world that they were good humans. So, and I think other ways that um, we do something good in the name is, is sometimes showing of gratitude. Um, I think there's been so many ways that we've showed first responders, both in this COVID um, tragedy and in 9-11 and other um, things. It's very important to honor the people that are helping. Yeah. You know, it's just really doing something good in their name. Um, everyone who's a New Yorker, and I'm sure many people have seen this, is that, you know, how we used to get outside and start banging plates and you know, every time responders were off the shifts. So honoring the tragedy. Yeah, yeah, it's very important. It's important because uh, I think we don't fully realize what that burnout feels like. You know what I mean? What yeah. that grief and burnout and, you know, 
I'm not someone who is necessarily shouting at everyone to get vaccinated. I'm, I'm have my feelings about it, but, um, I just do think it's, you know, you can relate the heroism of the first responders in 9-11 to the folks who are on the front lines still two years later with COVID, like really just for a minute, try to imagine their burnout and risk, give them some respect. You know what I mean? Like whatever that means. And that can mean just smiling, buying someone a coffee. If you see them in the coffee shop, um, writing a nice note, you know, doing your part to stay out of the hospital would be a great start uh, with that. Um, whatever it is, but you know, do you remember last year um, during the winter, right after COVID started, how all the people you knew in your community were baking things and cooking mm-hmm. things and bringing food. You yourself brought lasagnas to all the hospitals and to many of the hospitals. And that was the way, right? That we do something good in their name. Yeah, absolutely. Because these, you know, and yeah, it's just such a bigger issue, I guess. And I how, just do keep, we, yeah. how do we honor a tragedy? Like what's happening tomorrow? Again, there'll be the 20th anniversary. I don't know much of the plans that are going on. I didn't um, get very involved, but I know that they're going to be reading the names. I know there's been a couple of new documentaries that were made, you know, honoring voices 20 years later. Yeah. Have you ever been down to the, um, to the museum or to the memorial? Um, well, I've been, you know, past the memorial many times because mm-hmm. I found myself in that area of lower Manhattan. I've never been to the museum. I find it, uh, I've been there occasionally like late at night. And that is the time that feels nice to be there. I find it really, really, really difficult to go there and see people taking selfies. As a tourist attraction. Absolutely. I totally, totally get what you're saying. I get it. And I'm, you know, I know that there are people who are far away from this tragedy in time and in space and everything. And so I'm not even trying to like make shame anyone, but it doesn't feel good for me. I can't stand it. So... I don't like to go that often. It makes me like so, so fucking sad. And I'm not someone who generally like, obviously I do this podcast with you. I'm not someone who like shies away from things that make me sad. And like, again, like there are so many horrible tragedies that happen all over the world. And I don't want to like, you know, necessarily make one seem like it's worse than the other for what, but you know, this is, it's personal because it's my city and it's like, it just makes me so sad that actually sometimes like thinking about or going down to the world trade center, like it breaks my heart too much more than I actually can like bear. Well, it's certainly not. I agree. It's weird to think of it as a tourist attraction, but as a sculpture, Mm. it's so profound. I remember knowing some people that were involved. Um, They had put out a, um, a contest in a way of people to design the memorial. And I knew somebody that put in one of the designs. Mm. So I, it took a lot of people, I think hundreds of people, maybe even thousands, put in different um, bids to, to, from, but the actual memorial that was made is so unbelievable that you can take a sculpture and and have it express, you know, such depth and such emptiness and such um, just deep paint is just unbelievable. So I, I suggest to anybody like Zara say, go at night, you know, when yeah, there aren't a lot of tourists there, but it is just, it's so hollow and it's so, it's so profound, but think about that. That is another way, you know, how we, 
we honor people through memorials and artistic expressions and songs and plays. And, you know, there's just so many different ways that we do that. I think I have really complicated feelings surrounding 9-11 because, I mean, of course, I feel that it's a horrible tragedy, but like because of what happened afterwards with the response being the Iraq war, which is one of the most disgusting injustices to ever occur and the most ridiculous 20 year long war, which killed hundreds of thousands of people who didn't deserve to die and innocent American young people also, um, that it muddies something for me sometimes. So like, but when I connect back to the tragedy itself, it's so painful, but like my anger about the Iraq war, I'm just being honest. This is my personal feeling is so strong because I think it is one of the worst atrocities ever committed. It's a, it's a war crime um, that it just, it's really unfortunate that that is what happened in the response to this thing, that we responded to it by just killing so many other innocent people as a response to innocent life being lost. It just makes me sick, truly. So it's kind of what we're talking about, though. You know, we're talking about how do we turn the unbelievable anger of something instead of turning it into another wrong? You know, how do we turn a wrong into a right? And so that's kind of what we're saying, What you know, what people do on an individual basis, what we could do as a community, as a nation, trying to turn a wrong into a right instead of a wrong into another wrong. And so, you know, I think we're trying to embrace the root of the problem instead of making another problem. Right. Um, so, so, yeah. So just to go on a little, uh, what? I said capitalism is always the problem. Sorry, that's just my lefty tangent, but it really is. So just to go on a little bit about, you know, some of the ways that we can live and, 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 and forget at the same time and remember this all at the same time is also to create new chapters of our own life and to be able to move ahead, you know, often for individuals. And again, I'm going back to the individual losses that people have. Very often we have so much heartbreak that um, it closes our heart. And the, the hope is that heartbreak can, can open our heart instead of close our heart. And I think that's a really, that has to do with continuing to live. Um, you know, one of the sayings I have on my wall is time alone does not heal. It's our recommitment to life that mm. helps us heal. That's interesting. I had that conversation. I actually mentioned this a couple of weeks ago after this conversation, I was talking to someone about that very specific thing about tragedy, trauma, heartbreak, you know, it changes you and it can either harden you or soften you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I would like to put an asterisk on that and saying that like, it's also sometimes doesn't just do one or the other. Like it can soften you and sometimes mm-hmm. you're triggered and then you clo- close your shell, you know? And right. so like, it's okay. Like, like with a lot of things we talk about with like how you, how people deal and process trauma and grief and like, it's not a linear process. There are many a bump in the road. There are many sharp turns that you might have Mm -hmm. not expected. You know, I think trigger is a word, is a buzzword that we've kind of all, it's come into the lexicon over uh, the past couple of years, but it's real. So like, actually, it's something worth even, I think, speaking about quickly is the word triggering. You know, we throw it around, I'm triggered and this and that. I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying it's something I think we all now say and Hopefully we're being able to identify what that really means. But truly just accept that like when you are triggered by something, by a trauma that happens, you might 
fall off your path of openness or happiness or swimming, well, you might get scared and sink yeah. for a second. You know what it's I mean? It's biochemical. So always to remember, yeah, that it's not linear. It doesn't have to like, the thing about a bump or a trigger or something that kind of interrupts your healing process and grief, like it doesn't have to wash it all away. It doesn't have to wash away all of the progress you feel like you've made or all the healing you've done. And I think it's important to be able to look at like moments where we have, and I don't even want to say moments of weakness because that gives some kind of like negative connotation. to Vulnerability. It. Right. Moments of vulnerability that you have and humanity, like really like humanness. It's, it's very normal for this kind of thing to happen. Like if that happens, don't, don't like shame yourself you know, and think that like, oh, well, I've come so far and look today, like something happened and I got triggered and I freaked out. And, you know, it's just, that's your person. It's really fucking hard to be a person. And it's really fucking hard to be a person who's gone through a traumatic experience or lost someone in a traumatic way. It's just, it's, it feels so impossible. And you know what, like to anyone listening who may have like lost somebody in 9-11, because that's what we're talking about right now. It's so unfair. It's like such a sad, unfair, shitty fucking way to lose someone. And if that happened to you, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry because like it's something you have had to think about and it's been a public, you know, thing for so long. Everyone has an opinion on it. Everyone like, you know, it's almost unavoidable and it's so tragic. It's so tragic and it's so, it's so shitty. And I think sometimes... We should just honor people by telling them we realize how shitty something has been for them, you know, and not try to dance around it. Believe me, every single day I say that. That's what I say. It sucks beyond, it sucks beyond what anyone else can probably understand. And I know that like, even for people who, and you would know more about this than I would, mom, but like for people who lost people in 9-11, you know, I know there's even like well, you wouldn't understand my specific grief and you, because my grief hurts more because X, Y, and Z. And like, everyone's right in that scenario. No one understands exactly what each other, what someone's grief feels like. And it's so bitter. And I'm so sorry that you would have ever had to, anyone listening would have ever had to experience something so painful. It doesn't seem fair. And I really don't have any kind Mm. of rationalization that would make any type of sense because it's senseless and it's horrifying. And uh, all I can say is I hope that 20 years later that you found a way to let some light back in and have some kind of peace and healing. You deserve it. And it's, um, it's truly tragic and, and truly awful. And my, my heart deeply, deeply goes out to you for being able to, to live with that and keep going. Amen. So it brings up the one last point, um, which is about forgiveness. And forgiveness isn't necessarily for the masterminds that drove the planes into the buildings. And forgiveness isn't necessarily the governments that created all this mess in the first place. But there's a, the forgiveness comes down to also sometimes people blame themselves when, when a loved one dies. Right. You know, I had parents tell me, I should have told them not to go to work that day Aww. or it was my fault. I told them to become a stockbroker, you know, so we oh, end up, so there's sad. so much blame, this personal blame that we have. So forgiveness is a huge, huge word. And I always think about that woman um, who was the victim of the church shooting, that big church shooting and how she embraced the, the um, murderer, you know, with forgiveness. And she talked about forgiveness 
And I realized that people throughout history, like, you know, Maya Angelou, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Desmond Tutu, have always talked about forgiveness. So I found two beautiful quotes that I want to read. And one addresses what you just said, Zara, which is from Yoko Ono. Of course, you know, she had some forgiveness to do. She said, take forgiveness slowly. Don't blame yourself for being slow. Peace will come. Oh, it's beautiful. I love that. And the other one is from Desmond Tutu. And he said, as I walked out the door towards the gate that would lead me to my own freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Mm. That's so beautiful. It's really, truly beautiful. And that's such a... such an emotionally mature place to be able to get to and what an inspirational kind of thing for us all. Right. If someone like and, doesn't and they both go together. That. Sometimes it's yeah. slow. Yeah. Sometimes it's slow. Mm. Well, I just want to say a huge thank you to the city of New York for being one of the most incredible places on earth to me, the most incredible place on earth. I know it's um, that's a personal choice but Mm -hmm. for me it's the most um the most amazing place on earth and it's it is that way because of the people who live in it not because of the people who govern it and because of their creativity and enduring spirit and kindness and inclusiveness and radicalness and wildness and in a time when it seems like that is trying to be priced out to homogenize the kind of population of the city. I hope that we don't lose that because New York city is the most special, resilient, incredible, wild, eclectic, like not so classy, trashy, cool place in the, in the world. And I, it has been the honor of my life to get to just be on a fly on the wall here. And it's so sad every time I run past in Brooklyn Bridge Park every morning and look at where the World Trade Center used to be. It makes me sad every time. It's so horrible to think about, you know, so many thousands of people from this wonderful place and so many, you know, people who came to New York, this largely welcoming place. I know it's not perfect. I know it's harsh. I know there are people here who aren't welcoming, but largely a place where people see that they can come and feel part of a big melting pot. It makes, it breaks my heart doubly to think about those people, you know, coming here to find opportunity from other countries and, and being killed in such a violent way. Yeah. My grandma, exactly. My grandmother was an immigrant to this country. And it's really the only reason that, you know, and to not just his country, but to New York City. That's the only reason, like, you know, we're, either of us are here. So I don't know. My heart feels very heavy and sad. And, you know, 20 years time also goes really fast. And that's weird. So I'm thinking too. how we all how we all dealt with it, um, just in closing, how we all dealt with it right after it happened. There were these spontaneous um, gatherings of community. Um, of touching of hearts. So if anyone's feeling like Zara is today, you know, just like so deeply, deeply sad, you know, don't hesitate to just reach out and, and love because that is the antidote. 
to to horror and tragedy. I just wanted to mention briefly a couple of things and resources. Um, I have done, um, I've been honored to have a small involvement and I look forward to having more in the past with a wonderful organization called Friends of Firefighters. Um, and they have done over the past 20 years some incredible work for fire, as you, as the name implies, firefighters um, in New York City. And uh, they are, they are really incredible. Um, upcoming, I believe today, actually, I'm not sure if it's sold out or not, but they are doing um, a benefit for Friends of Firefighters. It's um, and called Being Buscemi, an evening with Steve, with special guest Steve Buscemi, hosted by uh, the famous director, Kevin Smith. And tickets are available at smodcastle.com. Uh, this will post today, so hopefully um, you guys can check that out. And if not, please check out um, Friends of Firefighters and see, you know, how you can donate to them. Again, it's firefighter, uh, friendsoffirefighters.org. There's all different kinds of ways you can get involved, all kinds of different events that you can go to that they do to raise money. Um, so they basically just, in, in closing, they provide free mental health and wellness services to the FDNY community uh, since 2001. And also just like, would want to, I just want to quickly mention, um, again, that John Stewart, um, that John Stewart has done tons of advocacy, advocacy work for first responders who are still struggling with illness, um, related to 9-11. Um, he's an incredible advocate for this community. And I just would encourage anyone to follow him and what he does because he can really explain it and his work and what he does to, you know, he's spoken in front of Congress numerous times. Um, I just can't encourage people enough to um, to check out and follow what he does. He's a real, uh, true, true blue, true guy. So, and then also rockunited.org again, and we are going to be making a donation today to Rock United and Friends of Firefighters um, on behalf of processing and are going to encourage you guys to do the same thing if you have a little bit of extra money lying around. It doesn't, when, you know, you donate to things, it doesn't have to be a ton of money. Like you can donate $5 and it seems like, oh, what is my $5 going to do? But if everybody donates $5 and there's a thousand people who do that, that's $5,000. You know what I mean? So every little bit helps when we're thinking about trying to donate to um, organizations that you know could use our help. So that is, that is our show for today and just sending love and um, support to everybody out there on this 20th anniversary of the tragedies of 9-11-2001. Be in peace, be in love. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, makers of specialty cheese from Switzerland, crafted with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. 
Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere in the United States. But that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach cave-age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmiusa.com. That's E-M-M-I-U-S-A.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.